Welcome to the Mass Appeal Podcast, where we break down how to monetize and market apps that appeal to the masses. The Mass Appeal Podcast brings you top players in the mobile app economy to help you stay on top of winning app marketing and monetization trends. I'm your host, Tommy. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. You are tuned in to another episode of the Mass Appeal Podcast brought to you by Agile. I am your host today. My name is Tommy. If you're joining for the first time, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to listen to this podcast. If you're joining for the whatever time, thank you as well for joining. Go and give the podcast a review. Maybe five stars if you're feeling so inclined. If you think the podcast stinks, give it one star and we'll try to make it better. But at baseline, thanks for listening. Thanks for taking the time out of your day. As always, I'm super excited for today's guest. As anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, I get particularly excited when I get to talk to people who are CEOs at businesses. I think they have a really interesting experience in this world. They bring with them uh, generally long histories of experience at different companies and ventures and successes and failures. So I'm really excited for today's guest because I know this individual. I know he's a really kind man, but he's also had his own wonderful successes starting businesses and managing businesses. So without further ado, today's guest is Miguel Acosta, who is the CEO at B-Ruby and Gelt. Miguel, how are you? Fine, thank you. Hi, Tommy. Hi, everybody. How's life? Good? Life is good, and it's always busy. So no matter who you talk to, we're always kind of in the middle of 100 things. But, but life is fun, so I can't complain. I start questioning sometimes if busy is good anymore. I feel like it's such a, a thing that we just accept as people that being really busy is a good thing. And sometimes I feel like I could slow down a bit. Do you ever feel like you wish things were just a little bit less busy? Every single day, to be honest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. And I, I kind of read a lot. And the more you read, the more you realize that it's actually very important to, to disconnect. Uh, yeah. And it's something that I actually have to work on. Just disconnecting, not only one day or one afternoon or the weekends, but actually like one week or two weeks. So yes, I fully agree with that. I'm going to ask you a weird question. What kind of literature do you read? Or do you read like everything? Do you read business books or is it more classics or fiction? It's, it's more business and it's a lot about personal development, to be honest. Okay. So I have, I've gotten into the Stoics philosophy and everything. So it's culture that 2000 years ago, they were talking about life being stressful and how you need to relax. And this was 2000 years ago. So it's amazing how spot on they were with what we're, what's happening right now. Who was that that wrote that? Uh, Stoics. It's a group of philosophers. Okay. So that's S-T-O-I-C-S. Oh, the Stoics. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. The Stoics. I'm sorry for that. Sorry for no, the okay. Spanish pronunciation, by the way. So I'm, I'm from Spain, now that you're saying. So basically, um, so that was the Spanish pronunciation. No, but, it's, but it's, it's great. But, but it's the whole thing. So that, that's, that's fun. I feel like most of, uh, not most, but so many of these philosophies pull from that theme so often, right? You mentioned the Stoics. Obviously, so much of Buddhism is grounded in this idea that life is suffering and you have to be mindful in order to ultimately find some peace in your life. And it sounds like the Stoics have a similar approach. Right. And if you go to the Jewish religion or you go to the Christian religion or you go to the Muslim religion, the essence is actually the same one. Pretty interesting. Yeah. It is interesting. But, but that's, yeah, that's more philosophical. But yeah, yeah, it's very interesting when you start reading. It is interesting. It makes you kind of start to see that like everyone is busy, but busy means so many different things to everyone. And I think everyone wishes they could slow down a little bit. And it's so funny how in this world, I've said on so many on so many calls and conversations, the words, I'm busy, but that's a good thing, right? As if the opposite would, would be bad to be bored, but sometimes it's what we end up wishing, you know? 
Yeah, at least, I mean, I, I like soccer or football. So at least I have my soccer games once in a while. Who's your team? Being from Spain, Real Madrid. Real? So, uh, yeah. Well, it's that or Barca, right? Uh, yeah, I just like more Real. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, Come on. you know, we have the office in Madrid and we have the people in Madrid. And actually, my two kids were born in Madrid. So, yeah, I have to be from Real Madrid. So sorry. I about understand. That. That's totally fair. But as of 2024, it's a good year for us. So I don't know when you're going to hear, when the audience will hear this, but 2024, it's a happy year for Real Madrid. So I'm happy. (laughs) They'll hear it soon, don't worry. So nothing will change in a big way. You're from Spain, and but today you live in San Francisco, yes? Correct. Tell us a little bit. I mean, is this a recent thing? Tell us a little bit about how you arrived at where you are. Okay, so basically life, so you, you don't know what's going to happen with life, okay? So then the reason why I'm saying this is that seven years ago, no, even more, eight years ago, we decided to come to California because we were about to sell the company. Our biggest competitor was actually in the Bay Area, in next to San Francisco, and we thought it would be great, one, for kids to learn English, and two, for this huge company, which was Rakuten, to maybe pitch them and, and why not sell to them. So that was, and our plan was to be here only one year. For whatever reason, the kids did not want to move back. So we decided to stay another year. Then coronavirus came by. So we stayed another few years. And at the end of the day, the funny thing about life is that we actually got an offer from a Spanish company and we ended up selling to a Spanish uh, company. So kind of the message here with life is that you kind of organize something around one where you think it's going to go. And then down the line, everything just is just messed up. And at this stage, we have the company in Spain or shareholders in Spain. But I have two teenagers who've decided to stay in the U.S. So that's kind of where that's my personal life. This is a personal question. Do you want to go back to Spain or are you are you very happy in San Francisco? Oh, so that's a very good question. So as everything in life, there are goods and bads on, on every situation. So so San Francisco has fantastic uh, things and there are other things which I miss more from Spain. So I would say uh, right now, because we've been seven years, I want to go to another place. I don't know if it would be Spain or <laughs> it would be another place. But at the end, uh, again, each city, each country has its own benefits and then it, they're just getting the best out of them. So the Silicon Valley culture is actually amazing in terms of all the, the work hype, which is great. But the Spanish culture is very amazing in the term of the leisure part and being more, there's being more to life than just work. Yeah. Um, so ideally, if we're able to combine everything in life, that would be the perfect situation. So you want to you work hard, but you also want to enjoy life. 100%. And sometimes I feel that in Spain, we might be enjoying too much life, <laughs> not working too much. And I have the impression that at least here in Silicon Valley, it's actually the opposite. We're just working too hard. So I guess I'm trying to go the, the, the midway. That, that's, that would be my idea. And it's to the initial point, right? It's always, it's always very, very challenging to find that correct balance of the two, especially as someone in your position, right? Who has a, a lot to oversee. We glossed over this, right? Because within that story, the impetus for some of this story is rooted in Be Ruby, right? And you wanting to explore the opportunity to sell the business to a Silicon Valley-based company, then obviously the business ends up selling to someone in Spain. But when did you start BeRuby? And what was, uh, or when did you join BeRuby maybe? Uh, one or the other, right? And what was the experience like? Okay, so if, if this is a very, I used to work at Yahoo many years ago in the year 1999. Okay, so at that time there was no Google, there was no YouTube, there was no, I don't know, Instagram, whatever. So I started in, I mean, online in, in Yahoo in 1999. Then at, in the year 2004, I moved to ask.com, ask Jeeves, which was yeah. a search engine to yeah. open that in Europe. So my responsibility was to, you know, Google was there at that time, but it was kind of opening ask.com and trying to 
to make a business there. And then at that time, and I'm talking about the year 2000 or whatever, 2007, 2008, everybody was talking about the king is the user, no? and it was the web 2.0 and the user had to be the king. And my, my kind of thinking was, okay, the user is the king. There's a lot of money being made on the internet thanks to that user, and the user is just not receiving anything. Mm. So that's when I decided to launch a company, which was Brewery.com. And the whole premise was whatever money I make, thanks to you as a user, I just give it back to you. That eventually became a word, which was cashback concept, and that's where, yeah. where we are right now. But the initial idea was if I'm going to make some money because you watch a YouTube video and they're going to pay me for that, I'm going to share that money. If you buy some shoes and I get paid for that, I'm going to give that money to you. If you, watch, if you do a survey and you get money, I'm going to give you money back. So the whole idea was let's make the user also part of the business kind of yeah. business model, business world. And that's where we started. And again, that was 13, 14 years ago. We went through all the processes that pretty much most companies do. So we went through very good times where we raised money. We went through other times where there was not that much money and revenues were just not there. We went through 50% of our revenues kind of depending on travel. So obviously coronavirus comes by and there's no travel in one year. So we got, again, shocked there. So we've gone, we've done the whole process, raising funds, getting shareholders out, shareholders in, getting the wrong partner on board. We did that. Getting the wrong employees on board. We've done everything. Yeah. And at the end of the story right now where we are is we finally sold the company three years ago. And right now I'm more in a managerial position with another company that our shareholders have also bought. That's pretty much okay. where we are. It's super interesting. 14 years is a really long time. It's a really long journey. No. Yes, and this is Spain, to be honest. Everything's slower. So absolutely everything. So to raise money, if you're in Silicon Valley, you usually raise it in six months, nine months. In Spain, it's one and a half years. Wow. If you want to do expansion in the US, obviously it's the same language, same currency, you go faster. In Spain, if you want to go into Italy or Portugal, you have language issues. And if you go to if you want to go to the UK, you have another currency, for example, which makes everything slower. If you want to hire people, also so slower. And then finally, when you sell the company, even the earn out, which is usually one or two years in any U.S. company, in Spain is four years. So it's just everything. Wow. It's just it just takes longer. Do you know why? Is there a particular reason, or is it just a cultural thing? I think it's just cultural. To be yeah. honest, I think that there's not that urgency. So basically, the what I find here, and at least I'm talking about the, the Silicon Valley, California. So I don't know about other states, but everything is just. You're always in a hurry. You're yeah. always in a hurry to, instead of having 100 uses, have 200 uses to, to kind of make money, to be honest. Everything is kind of in a hurry. You need to hurry up. Yeah. Um, and in Spain, it's just things are just slower. It's slow. There's no rush. Interesting. But 14 years is still a long time, right? No matter how you put it. And it's, it's crazy long. And then I, if I tell you about my story, so I started, I didn't say that before, but I started investment banking. So I did investment banking for nearly five years. I was at Yahoo for five years. I was at Ask.com for four years. So I'm, I'm, I was the kind of the five, four-year-old, the five, four-year change in life. And then this has just been a little longer. And that's, to be honest, that's probably one of the reasons we came to the US. So I was saying about selling the company, but it was also about challenging yourself and just doing a different thing. So, but I agree with you that <laughs> I don't want to do, make any spoilers, but it, it seems like it's, it's reaching the end of the journey. That, that's, that's the way I feel. Well, that must, I mean... It's always nice to close a chapter, right? At least, especially after it's one that you can be super proud of and look back on and say, you know, we did really cool work. Yeah. And to be honest, I want to have that feeling of being scared of, okay, mm. I finished the chapter. What's your next chapter in life? And I yeah. think it's it, that going out of the comfort zone, like, oh, what am I going to do? I think, I, I think it's nice. I think it's, it's exciting. 
And that's something that I want to feel like doing again. Like, so I don't, I don't want to have something prepared and just have like a nice change. Like, okay, from here, I'm going to go to another place. I'm actually looking forward to just jumping and kind of waiting to see what happens. Nice. I appreciate that mentality. You only get so many in life, so many times to take a leap of faith, right? And it's important to capitalize on. Yeah. And I, I don't want to say my age. But if you start adding up all the years, <laughs> I don't have that many jumps already. So I think I need, I need to do it. <laughs> None of us do, right? We all basically live the same kind of lives. And so it's all it's just relative to where you're at in that particular moment. But what I wanted to ask you, because during your initial discussion of some of the impetus that led you to launching BRuby, right? The idea of creating value exchange with customers, right? In an ecosystem where so many advertisers and so many publishers were getting so much revenue, the idea of giving some of that back to the users was a lot of the impetus here. And you said this was at really the beginning of the cashback concept. And my question in all of this kind of rambling is, what did the cashback landscape look like at the time? Were there many players or were there just, it was you guys, Rakuten, whoever? To be honest, there was, the, the market was not known at all. So there was pretty much no one. So we then you find out that there were different initiatives in different countries. But at, at that time, Rakuten was actually Ebates, and it wasn't that yeah. known. Yeah, I know um, that. It, it became known later. In the UK, you had Quidco, but again, it was kind of not that known. And then in France and Germany, they were just, they, it was just kind of like we were all getting to the same point, but from different angles. And then like three or four years later, you kind of find out and it starts popping out and you can see that we all approach the market differently. So again, mm -hmm. we went more into the, the surveys or the getting money if you watch a video on YouTube. And then other companies were more based on pure e-commerce cashback. Yeah. Uh, but at that time, the landscape was pretty empty and there was not a, it wasn't that clear that the whole business as such was going to succeed, to be honest. How has your, your business model, if at all, changed since that time, right? You said Surveys, videos were a key component or a key revenue driver for you and the customers, obviously, in this case, right? Has that continued to be kind of the, the bedrock of the business or has it shifted? It, it shifted a lot. So basically it, a lot by that, meaning that at that time, e-commerce, pure e-commerce and pure cashback, which is kind of what we know right now, like I buy something and I get money back. At that point for us, it was only like 20% of our business. The other 80% of the business was doing, again, making a survey or we had a company that launched a new app and they wanted to have users testing the app. That was a lot of money. At that time, you had, it was kind of the crazy Facebook. I want to have as many followers as I can in Facebook or as many likes, whatever. So we actually had a, we could send 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 people to make a comment in any site or approve something or make a positive review. I mean, it was, we had a powerful we had ways to influence whatever, which I don't know if that's very ethical or not, but we can actually, we could, we could put a 1,000 positive reviews on any app at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And that was incentivized traffic. And then with time, that kind of led for many companies to complain that, you know, again, it was incentivized. It wasn't kind of like a pure business. People were actually forced to do that, which they were not. But again, there was a money, sure. there was yeah. a money relationship. Even Amazon right now, to be honest, you cannot rate any product. Just they're trying to avoid this or getting paid to rate. Yeah. And that's, we saw that again, that was like 10 years ago. Like we had to go more for the, for the pure e-commerce and that's, that's kind of shifted. And as of today, 80, 90% of our revenues are actually more based on cashback traditional e-commerce. We still have surveys because surveys, they're more clean and surveyors, they don't mind if you get paid. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's part of the business. So that's fine. Yeah. 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 It's part of their panel development, right? Is that like, that's just baked into the whole thing. Yeah. And everybody's, I mean, everybody agrees that they should be paid you know, if you're a panelist. So 
So that well, that's kind of the other 10% pretty much. Yes, it's the idea of, you know, people's time has value, right? And you have to place a real a real value on, on that time as well as the information they share with you. So I think that's... Yeah, and if you go to back to my starting point, if I'm going to watch a 30-second advertising on a car dealer or a car company, I should get paid for that. It's my time. I agree. Yeah, it's my time and my attention, right? So like if you want it, it costs something. And as long as I'm the right target, so obviously what well, you don't want to have is 1,010 year old kids in whatever country watching a video, but as long as I'm the right target, I mean, if, if you're a banker, investment bank, a private banker, you should pay me a hundred bucks to listen for me to have you one hour listening to whatever sales pitch you have. So yeah. I'm, I really think that the incentive, incentivized market makes sense. But again, the market did not see it that way. And at one point you always need to realize, and that's, I guess that's a key learning like that. You need to adapt yourself to what the market is demanding as opposed to what you think the market should be demanding. Yeah, 100%. So within this, right, we have a shift of 20% of your revenues coming from the shopping, traditional kind of cashback model, shifting to 80, 90% today or so, right? What allowed you to execute that shift effectively, if anything? Uh, Actually, one is patience. So remember, we, you know, I told you that we launched in Spain and then we went to Italy, Portugal. So we, people were not that into e-commerce at that time. So you have to wait for the e-commerce to evolve. So, and that's, again, goes back to your point, why so slow? So slow because the market was not ready yet. So basically the shift was not from one day to another. We actually, we gradually went to do it on the homepage, which is kind of the starting page. We included more e-commerce sites and then slowly went that route, but it wasn't an overnight thing. And again, this is history, it's many years ago, but, but at one point in Southern Europe, they were called Pigs, I think, were the countries which is Portugal, Italy, Spain, and Greece that we were on the in the um, you know in, we were just about to get bankruptcy as those four regions. And I remember that many years ago talking to a US company and they were actually laughing our business because we were actually choosing the four hardest markets at that time. So, <laughs> so I don't know if you recall that, but it was it was it was a situation where where four of the of all the European countries again Spain, Italy, Portugal, and Greece we were about to I don't know about to fall out of the crash and economy. And Ruby had presses in three of them. So they were actually making fun. And when will we be launching Greece was, was what we received from U.S. potential investors. As a person uh, whose father is from Greece, I'd have that question for you still today. When are you launching in Greece? Because it's, it's a great opportunity. Yes, it's, it's all about timings. And again, so 14 years is a lot. So we've, we've covered many years of good years and also not so good years. So the e-commerce piece, it sounds like it required patience in terms of committing to it, but also waiting for the markets just to become more accustomed to shopping online, which took a long time for a lot of countries, like you mentioned, those those four in particular, right? Today, how do you structure it? Is there like, I guess, as someone who comes from a, a different kind of background, right? Where like our focus obviously here is is a similar kind of cashback model, but in the gaming space, right? So I'm well-versed in, in how to execute that, but how do you go about an e-commerce part of vertical? Is it you go and create one-to-one relationships with merchants or they're is it that plus some combination of signing up for affiliate programs? Could you round me out how, how you go about the process? Yeah, okay. So the first is an strategic decision that one, one needs to make. So it's, it's the 80-20 rule. So the question here is, do you want to only cover, I don't know, 10, 20 merchants where everybody shops? Like, I don't know, Expedia, Hotus.com, or you want Nike or whatever. So that's the first decision you make. You need to make, or you want to go long tail. By long tail, make it, meaning, okay, I'm going to aggregate or integrate 2,000 merchants. And maybe I only have one person looking for whatever this random store or so whatever personalized hats or whatever it is, and you still have it. So the first decision is the, the kind of the word is long tail. Do you want to go long tail? So long tail is 
their products, which they don't have that many shoppers. Actually, they have very, very little shoppers, and that's pretty much it, okay? Well, our decision was to go long tail. So our, our decision was to get over 2,000 merchants. If you want to go long tail, there's no way you can have 2,000 relationships. So what we do is we pick only eight, 10 relationships. We, we really want to have a close relationship with, in our case, in Spain, we have, we have Miravia, or in the U.S., it would be Expedia or whatever. And you have a very close relationship, direct relationship with them. And then for the rest, from the merchant 21 to merchant 2000, you do what we call affiliation networks. So you use an affiliation network. So an affiliation network is, they're kind of like intermediaries. So we work about with 10 or 12 of them. And what they do is they collect 100, 200, 300 merchants on their side, and you only need one integration. So with a 24-hour integration, you already have another 200 merchants that you can offer to your users. You started that and you said there was two routes you can go, right? You can cover 10 to 20 where people spend whatever percentage of their time, the majority of their time shopping, right? Or maybe that's not the right way to put it, but 10 to the 20 largest we'll call e-commerce players, or you can go more long tail and you decided to go long tail. Can you take me through why that decision was made in this case? Okay, so I, I work with Yahoo and with Ask, both of them are search engines, as you know. And, and basically, at that time, we had the, you know, what they call sponsored, uh, sponsored matches, which is kind of the, the results you see at the top. And basically, what, what I saw, my experience was that the long tail, there was a lot, of money, a lot of money in the long tail. So thanks to my background, because of my background, I always think that the long tail is better. So it, it requires more people. It requires more integrations. But at the end of the day, I thought that it was worth offering everything or oh, as many merchants as you can. Okay. But that doesn't mean I was right, by the way. I still think that maybe you can have a cashback model only based on a subcategory, only based on the top 20, or only based on travel. We also kind of look what everybody was doing. So in the UK, there was a site called Quitco, Cashback Quitco, and they actually yeah. launched cashback only on travel. So they actually did that experiment. Let's only launch a cashback on travel. They actually closed it two years later. So um, it's just interesting. So that, that was kind of my reasoning, and I think it's an open question. What, yeah. what alternative is better? Is part of it because it's somewhat simple math equation in some instances where because these products are less purchased and the conversion rate's lower, that the payout's higher for you guys? Is, that, is it rooted in some of that? It's just how, many, how much you want to complicate yourself, pretty yeah. much. So basically, if you only have 20 merchants, everything is smooth. You only have 20 relationships and everything should kind of work. When you have 2,000 merchants, everything is harder because there are issues with very small stores or this issue, whatever. So why do you have the 2,000 stores? It's not because you make more margin or you make more money. I think it's more philosophical. It's just that I want you to come to my page and find anything you want to. Anything you want, yeah. But I don't think margins will never compensate. So there's, if I had to, for whatever reason, if I don't have enough resources and have to decide where to go, it's always much better to go for the top 20 than to wait for a, you know, a sale on whatever type of black leather shoes company or whatever that you might have one user, but that's pretty much it. Yeah, but I guess there's pros and cons still, right? Because I'd imagine the trade-off with going top 20 on something like this is it requires, I'd imagine, you can correct me if I'm wrong, a certain degree of manpower and relationship development with those particular merchants. Whereas going long tail, like you mentioned, there are tools that allow you to exponentially expand your offering to consumers rather quickly. Is that fair at all? That's fair, Yes. But the direct relationships, they have other advantages. So they could probably pay you more. They know what you're doing. You can actually leverage on their brands. So, so one is more automatic, you're right, but still requires a lot of work. And just focusing on 20, you just have a better relationship with your clients. 
mm. with the advertised part of the clients. Okay. So today, BRuby has somewhere like thousands of partners integrated in the technology. Yeah, I think I have over 3,000 probably, yes. That's a lot. That is it. So it's like, it's almost like creating a search engine cashback solution to some degree. Correct. And by the way, it's the same approach of all our competitors. So we've, really? we've all decided that the more, the better. Yeah. It's super interesting. How much of, then it, then it gets to the question of, you're at 3,000, right? And it sounds like you're rather liberal in how you add new partners or new offers into the application, right? Because to have 3,000 means there's a ton in there in the first place. What role does consumer feedback play in determining what goes in there? So we pretty much, as you were saying, we're more like we, everything that can go in goes there. So out of yeah. the 3,000, we might have 2,000 with hardly any sales and we just include them. If a user is missing any, we, we try to contact them and see where they are. And again, if they're happy, if that merchant is anywhere, with, with any, if, if that store does anything related to marketing, they will usually be happy to work with us. So at the end of yeah. the day, the beauty about the affiliation model is that merchants only pay based on success and everybody wants to sell. So I'm not, everybody's happy selling and paying your commission on that sale. Yeah. Um, that's very, very easy. So at this stage, you know, if the users ask for whatever, we try to include them, but chances are we include pretty much everything. There's some areas which we don't, I don't know, like if the law is not that clear, like cannabis, it's not that law is not that clear in Spain, we just don't sell it. And then um, apart from that, we're pretty open, to be honest. So then I'd imagine a lot of the beauty and the science of the technology itself that powers me, Ruby is leveraging this massive catalog of offers that users can access and determining what are we actually going to show, right? Because obviously you're not showing 3,000 things at once. Is it fair to say that that's a big part of the technology here is determining what goes on the homepage and all the analytics that support what an experience for a customer looks like? Yes, but I would say that that's the easy part. Oh, okay. There's a harder part, which, which is not known, it's not known, which is all the tracking behind it. Okay. okay. So basically just normal user experience. I will go to BeRuby. I will click on a link. I will get to the store, wherever it is. And then by magic, if you buy something, the merchant will tell me, look, this person has bought 150 Nike shoes and there's a cashback of $10 or, you, or euros yeah. or whatever. So we actually have to show that information uh, to the user. Then what happens afterwards? You can actually cancel that order. Mm. So if you decide to cancel that order, you know, you give your shoes back, then the merchant needs to tell us and we need to cancel your amount. Then what could happen is that you don't cancel. You actually, uh, you go ahead, but the merchant decides not to pay you because they, I don't know, tracking went wrong. So you need to complain about the tracking. And then once everything is confirmed, I need to get the money. I need to let you know, hey, you told me you actually have this $10. You, know, you want to get paid? Yes, please give me your bank account. So at the end, this is only, not only one. This is thousands per day. Yeah. If you think about all the information that's going backwards and forwards in the cashback world, is a lot. So it's, it's not only about putting an affiliate link and getting money. It's actually identifying which shoes here it is. If that order gets canceled, if it doesn't go partial cancellation, so you might give back one of the two shoes. I don't know. <laughs> and so the commission needs to get adjusted and all the payment process and everything. So, so there's a lot of technology involved, especially if you don't want to put manpower into it. If you want everything to work automatically, that, that's where the challenge is. It is really hard because, yeah, I mean, you essentially have to power all the logistics that a normal e-commerce company would have to power. But on top of that, you're reliant on getting information from so many disparate sources at the same time, right? You need to rely on 
the affiliate links functioning correctly, the merchants passing information correctly to those through those links, the users being just normal consumers and returning things or saying you're defective or whatever. Uh, I'm sure there's fraud things that come up just like with any cashback application in this world, right? So it's a kind of a logistical yeah. nightmare, but I guess that's the fun problem to solve. Yeah, and then you have claims from users that they don't see whatever it, and it's a funny world. And in the affiliation world is also very tricky in terms of the famous cookie. We kind of yeah. work with cookies and who does that cookie belong to? Is it the last click? Is it the first click? Is it whatever? And you know, what, what we found actually less, less lately, but we actually had issues. We, at many points, we had orders which were not assigned to us and we knew it was us, but they were not assigned it. And then basically we would ask the merchant, you know, who has this, the word is attribution, but who, who actually yeah. gave you that buyer? And they always said it was Google SEM or Google Ads. And yeah. then you ask them, okay, what technology are you using to measure this? And they were using Google Analytics. Yeah, exactly. And it's okay, well, you're using Google Analytics and Google Analytics is saying that this comes from Google SEM. You know, this doesn't, doesn't it kind of look fishy? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, the world of attribution on its own is incredibly complicated, right? And it's complicated as well because consumers expect a very specific kind of experience in all of this, right? And sometimes it's it's challenging for a brand in the cashback space to develop good trust with their consumers when things are going wrong, even when obviously they're not trying to do anything wrong, right? It's just the fact that this technology is complex. There are about 500 different platforms out there that are currently advertising Nike shoes to users, right? And being able to make sure that a credit goes to the right place makes the whole thing incredibly complex. Right. So, so yeah. So, it's, again, going back to the initial question, yeah, it's a technology and kind of challenge to see what you put in the homepage, but it's kind of the easiest one. And at the end, yeah. the way you do it is we do a uh, editorial slash analytical approach. So, we might, we see the numbers, so we know who's selling the most, so we put in the homepage, but we also put an editorial element. And then you also need to account for seasonality. Yeah. It's amazing. Last question. I know you're excited for what comes next after all this, right? But in your current capacity, what, what's got you excited in 2024? What are you looking forward to? Biruby, you mean? Yeah, yeah. So we, um, we actually launched a product, which I think is pretty cool. So we're taking all this affiliation network concept, network concept to the uh, influencer. And basically, we've developed a, what, what we call a white-label tool, but we've developed a tool that we can go to any merchant and give that tool and they can create their own influencer program automatically. So, you know, Amazon has that. So Amazon has the influencer mm -hmm. program. We actually have the technology so that any merchant, no matter how big you are, we are able to create your own influential, you know, influencer tool uh, for your users. And that's something that's completely new. We haven't seen it anywhere else. And that's kind of where we're excited with it. Well, I'm excited to see how it goes. Miguel, this has been an awesome conversation. I particularly enjoyed talking about the idea of, of being busy, actually. And I, I've loved hearing your story about Ruby. It's, it's a fascinating one. You've been doing it for a long time. And I know part of that is just the nature of, you know, having a, a company in Spain. But congratulations on all your success there. And um, thanks so much for sharing these insights. I, I genuinely very much so enjoyed this conversation today. Well, thank you very much, Lightwise. And I think the most important message is that we all need to slow down at points in uh, at moments in time. And I, I'm very bad at doing that, by the way. So I, you so know, I, I. I can tell you the theory, but <laughs> I'm not doing you that. Yeah, well. it's so funny. I'm I'm the same way. It's like I I know the words to say to discuss like what it means to slow down, but executing is a completely different story. But this has felt like a a non busy conversation, a stress free conversation. For that, I appreciate you. 
likewise summits the pleasure and you know we'll be in touch yeah absolutely thank you miguel for all of our listeners today's guest is miguel acosta who is the ceo of b ruby and gelt thanks so much miguel thank you for tuning into the mass appeal podcast brought to you by adjo you can see all our great episodes by visiting adjo that's a-d-j-o-e dot i-o slash blog or even better subscribe and never miss an episode if you enjoyed what you heard Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes so more people can learn these awesome app marketing insights. See you next time.